Good morning. Uh, Bergen kids, if you guys are here, you guys can head to the back and go get your uh, Jesus-centered Bible lesson. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike McKinney. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you are new, uh, we are thrilled that you're here. We're so thankful that you've gathered, gathered with us here on Sunday to, to worship Jesus. One of the things we want to make abundantly clear uh, is that when we gather here on Sundays, we come to be filled with Christ, to treasure Christ, to worship Christ, and to celebrate Christ and what he has done. And we do that a number of ways. We do that through singing songs with full hearts that are all about Christ crucified for us, risen for us. And we also do that through giving. Uh, you do not have to give, but uh, for those of you that know, uh, there are a couple silver boxes, one back here on the wall and one back here. If you'd like to give, you can give those boxes there. And lastly, we worship through the preaching of the Word of God found in the Scriptures. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll be in chapter 5. Uh, we'll be in Ecclesiastes. You've got Psalms and then Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. So go ahead and get your Bibles out. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Uh, I'm going to pray because I really need God's help. Because uh, without His Spirit working in and through me, working in your hearts, uh, this will all be in vain. So if you wouldn't mind, please bow your heads and let's pray. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. If we are not connected to the vine, who is Christ, we can do nothing. We can do nothing that honors you, that glorifies you, that bears fruit for your namesake. I ask, Lord, that your spirit would come, uh, fill me, uh, to preach your word clearly, courageously, graciously, and that you prepare our hearts to receive it well. Guard these people from anything that is erroneous that comes out of my mouth, anything that is unhelpful, and you would protect them from that, lead them to dis dis disregard it. But all that is true, that makes Christ look magnificent. May you take that and implant it in our hearts and cause us to rejoice deeply in him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The main reason that I am a Christian, the primary reason that I am a Christian is because in Jesus Christ, I have discovered the only remedy for my sin and the only ravisher of my soul. And that is not a subjective experience, that is an objective truth, that is fact, I have discovered that. And all throughout the Bible, throughout the scriptures, God and Jesus Christ is described as a fountain of living water by which your soul can drink deeply from and find deepest soul satisfaction. Jesus Christ said in John 6:35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Imagine Christ as a beautiful spring of clear, crisp, cool water that never, ever, ever runs dry. And imagine your heart and your soul like a drain that is constantly thirsty and was created for and designed by God to be filled with Jesus Christ. 
And then imagine a giant spiritual pipeline connecting your heart and soul to Jesus Christ. And when those two things connect and you discover satisfaction in Christ, that is worship. And so when we are coming here, we are coming to hear the word of God preached, that is one pipeline, and to sing the word of God centered on the gospel, that is another pipeline. We come to drink from Christ, to find our remedy for our sin in Christ. And there's coming a day when we will experience endless outlets and unhindered access to the living water found in Christ. It says in Revelation 7, 17, speaking about the future to come, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's why I'm a Christian. Now, the reason why I said unhindered access is because in this life, in this life, we cannot experience full, total rapture and worship of Christ. This, this pipeline that I was asking you to imagine is clogged and is filled and there's residue and buildup from sin, which hinders our ability to enjoy Christ here and now. In the cross of Christ, he did take away the full punishment for our sins, but the presence and the power of sin still remains and hinders our ability to worship Christ most fully and most deeply. And in this passage today, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we're going to see the key to preserving and enhancing our soul's capacity to worship the living Christ. I'm going to read, it's just a few verses, so I'm going to read the whole passage, just verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read it, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger, that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. So the very first sentence in verse one, if you just look at it, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. That's the main point of the whole passage. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Everything else from that sentence on is going to tell you what happens as a consequence of not guarding your steps when you go to the house of God. So if you notice the phrase house of God, that's simply, um, that's simply the place the people of God gather to worship God. If you remember in the Old Testament, um, people used to gather in a place called the tabernacle and King David would 
It's towards the end of his life, and he wanted to build what he referred to as a temple, and he identified it as the house of God. But God told him that he wasn't going to build it, rather his son, Solomon, was going to do it. And his son built the temple. And Solomon's the one who wrote this book, and he's referring to this temple where the people of God in the Old Testament would come to worship God. But when Christ came, he did away with that whole system. Christ was the final temple. He was the great high priest. When he died on the cross, it was the final sacrifice for sins. And so now, in the New Testament, here today, when we are gathering here, we are gathering in the house of God to worship Christ. So if you notice, though, it says, it gives you a command to prepare you to come to the house of God. It says, guard your steps. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. So what what does, this phrase, what does that phrase, guard your steps, mean? Now, rather than me simply tell you something that I think makes sense to me, I'm going to go to other verses in the Bible and have them tell me what this phrase means. It's one of the most important interpretations, excuse me, principles of interpreting the Bible. You let Scripture interpret other passages of Scripture. So, listen for this idea of steps. Psalm 17, 5. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Psalm 119, verse 33. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let not iniquity or sin get dominion over me. So there's this pathway that we as the people of God are expected to walk on. And what's governing us, he says in Psalm 119, verse 33, according to your promise. So there's these promises of God that we are to trust in fully, completely, and those guide us into the path that God intends for us to go. And it's contrasted with sin having dominion over us. So you're either walking in the obedient pathway of God, having the promises of God reign over you, or in disobedience, having sin reign over you. It also says in Psalm 37, verse 23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Psalm 37, 31, the law of God is in his heart, therefore his steps do not slip. So, steps are an image of our careful obedience to the commands of God, being led by the promises of God and our trusting in those. And when you don't trust fully in the promises of God, you, do not, you are not careful to guard your steps and walk carefully into the commands of God, you slip into sin. And this verse says, guard your steps. Be careful to obey the commands of God and trust fully in his promises. Why? It's because sin is a vicious, ferocious tiger hiding in the bush, ready to pounce on you and devour you. Sin is like the seductive woman off the side of the road trying to get you to allure you off the path of God. Sin is like puddles of thick grease that cause you to slip into utter destruction. Guard your steps. Flee from the cravings of lust and the passions of your flesh for the things of this world. 
and be tender to all that God is leading you to do in preparation for, in preservation of, in the preparation of your worship of God when you gather together. Listen to how 2 Peter puts it. The Apostle Peter puts it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. One of the greatest hindrances to your soul's ability to worship God, to worship Christ, is a lack of guarding your steps. Because when you come in to the house of God, you don't come in with a clear conscience. There is no room for God to be enjoyed in your heart. One pastor theologian puts it like this. If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world, your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. So, this is very essential. And look what he says in the second sentence. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifices of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Now, this is strange. Here's why this is strange. You would expect him to say to listen, to draw near to listen is better than to draw near and not listen. He doesn't say that, though. He says, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifices of fools. And what does that have to do with guarding your steps? I think this is what it is. When you fail to guard your steps, what happens is you slip into sin. And when you come into the house of God, you are now hindered in your ability to listen to God. And you've got this sin that you're dealing with. And your conscience rises up and heaps guilt and condemnation. And so what you do is you run and you do religious activity and you come and you pledge to make sacrifices to God, to maybe give something up or promise to God that you won't do something ever again. And we think we're actually doing God a favor by this. But it says in the last phrase of verse 1, for they do not know that they are doing evil. So when we don't guard our steps, we drift into sin, conscience rises up, heaps guilt and condemnation, we don't like that, so we run to the house of God and we vow to make sacrifices to God, to maybe pledge to give something up, to promise to God, I will not do something ever again. And we think we're actually getting God off of it. We think we're doing him a favor. We think we're doing something good, but it actually is evil in the sight of God. Now, what I want to spend some time on is what this phrase, what is the sacrifice of fools? What is that? 
So I'm going to give you a definition. I'm going to define the sacrifices of fools, and then I'm going to show you in the text where I'm getting this definition from, and then you, you can judge whether I'm being biblical or not. The sacrifice of fools is a rash, impulsive, flippant promise or vow to God that you make in order to cover up your sin, but you don't really end up keeping. I'll say it again because it's kind of a mouthful. The sacrifice of fools is a rash, impulsive, and flippant promise or vow to God that you make in order to cover up your sin. But you never actually end up keeping the vow. If you look at verses 2 through 5, okay, look at verses 2 through 5. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty, right, I said, rash, impulsive, flippant. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. We're going to come back to that phrase later. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow, make a promise, a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Now, I think it's pretty clear that the sacrifice of fools is a flippant, just quick, hasty promise to God that you won't do something again. I promise God I will never do the following things ever again. But where am I getting this idea of making, you're, you're making this vow in order to cover up your sin? Where am I getting that idea from? I get it from the phrase where it says, let your words be few. Verse three, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Proverbs 10, 19 says, when words are many, transgression or sin is not lacking. When when people come into the house of God and they're making flippant, they're heaping up empty words before God, making all these promises to God, you can know that there is sin being hidden. There is sin being dealt with. There is sin that is, what, that is being desired to be put away. So if you don't guard your steps, you slip into sin. Your conscience rises up and heaps guilt and condemnation. And when these rise up, we hate this. And what a fool does is it runs quickly to the house of God and it starts blabbering to God, making resolutions and empty vows that it never really ends up keeping. And it kills, destroys, rots your ability to worship. So here's my question. Why do we do this? Because... I've done this. Why do we do this? Why, why do we play this game with God? It's very simple. Because you want to get God off your back. You want the Holy Spirit to stop pestering you. Right? We, we view God like an uptight, annoying referee. We view God like a type A micromanaging supervisor, right? Oh, got your paperclip. Oh, you misspelled that word. 
right? This is, we, we can't stand these naggers. And so in order to get God off of our backs about this sin that we have, we very quickly say, all right, I won't do it again, I promise, get off of me. It's like when a little kid gets, well, a high schooler, gets caught cheating on a homework assignment, they get pulled to the dean's office, and they're caught, evidence is clear, they hate the feeling of being guilt, they know they're caught, they know there's no way out, and they say, fine, I'm sorry, I won't do it again, right? Or when a husband or a, or a wife gets caught in lust, right, and they're heaping guilt and condemnation in order to, for them to get them off of their back, they say, I'm sorry, I won't, I won't do it ever again, leave me alone. And I think the most serious of all is this is how it works in addictions, right? You keep telling yourself you're not going to do it again. You keep telling the person you love you won't do it ever again. You won't do it ever again. And each time you're caught, in order to get them off your back and have them stop pestering you, stop bothering you, you make a vow, you make a promise to get them off. We do the same thing with God. We can't stand when the Holy Spirit gnaws at our soul. We can't sleep at night, we can't rest, we can't settle, can't focus. And so we make the sacrifices of fools. Here's the problem. The reason why this will never work is because external rules and promises that you make upon yourself to appease a guilty conscience is never enough. Because eventually, you're going to be good enough for a while, and what happens? What happens? The guilt and the condemnation dissolve. And listen, when that happens, your guard is down. Right? Because you, I'm never going to do this again, God, I promise. Right? And so you're, you're really careful, and you're kind of being careful not to do that same thing, and then after a while, you've been pretty good, and you kind of walk with a little bit of swagger, You're like, I'm good. When that happens, your sin is most vulnerable and Satan is ready to pounce. And you end up right back in the same exact thing. And you buy one of Satan's greatest devices. He presents the pleasure of sin and he hides the consequences and the guilt you'll feel for doing it. Think the only reason anyone sins because it feels good. Can anyone disagree with that? I mean, the only reason anyone decides to rebel against the Almighty God is because sin offers pleasure. And Satan hides the consequences and the guilt that you will feel. And when you bite, he crushes you and you get right back into the same cycle. Thomas Brooks, one of the great Puritans, one of my favorites, he wrote a great book called The Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. It's an unbelievable book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. One of the first things he talks about, he calls it Satan presents the bait and hides the hook. So we're like fish in the water, right? So you got Reese, our daughter, for she loves Nemo. Finding Dory. So you got Nemo and the dad, right? And the dad's telling Nemo, son, this isn't actually happening in the movie. I'm just making up the scenario. So 
Um, he tells the son, you know, Nemo, uh, someday, son, you're going to be you know, swimming through the water and you're going to see a worm. And it's going to be floating in the middle of the water. And it's going to look like, there's a, there's like, it's going to look like a worm. And there's, there's a string attached to it, but you can't see it. It's invisible. And there's a hook, but you're not going to be able to see it. Don't bite it, son. Don't bite it. And so the fish, you know, you're, you're imagining yourself as a fish. It's hard to do, but you're swimming and you're, you're you're there, and you see the worm, and you veer away. You see another worm, veer away, veer away, veer away. After a while, though, you, you feel pretty good about yourselves. And then you see a worm, and you kind of go, hmm, I'm pretty hungry. I don't see a lot. There's no way. I don't really see the hook or anything. And you bite, you know, your face gets ripped off, go back to dad. You know, and Sorry. Your lips hanging. Dad, I'm sorry. Son, I told you not to. I know, I'm sorry. I won't do it again, right? That's the vow. I won't do it again. Get up. Leave me alone, Dad. I won't do it again. I promise. So back in the same cycle, you're swimming again. And before you know it, you're... It's a big cycle. And each time you fall into the cycle of the sacrifice of fools, it, you, you actually end up compounding your sin heaping sin upon sin. Each time you, you don't guard your steps and you drift into sin, you come back to God, make me promise, I won't do it again, I promise I'll never do it again, and you go back and you break it, you're, you're just compounding sin, verses four through six. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow then you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. It just piles sin upon sin upon sin. And look at, look at the very end of verse six. This is interesting. And do not say before the messenger. That word messenger can also be translated angel, right? So when God comes and confronts you, do not say before the messenger, that it was a mistake. When this happens, we end up making excuses. So we say things like, I just wrote a few of these down. I was just so tired. I'm so stressed. Nothing has been going right for me, so I felt like I needed it. I've been working so hard, so I felt like I deserved it. And worst of all, and I think most common maybe, is the excuse, I just didn't think it was that big of a deal. And we excuse what we go on, and the cycle continues. No wonder it's called the sacrifice of fools. So let's, all I've done is kind of state the problem, right? So let me just do a little bit of recap for you, okay? So you, in order to, for, to guard, no. In order to preserve and enhance your ability to worship in the house of God, you are told to guard your steps. Why? Because when you do that, you slip into sin. You can't listen to God. Conscience rises up, heaps guilt and condemnation upon you. You hate that feeling. So you come to God and you make promises, you make vows to never do it again, to get God off of your back. But it never works. So what's the root? What's where, why, why does this happen? What is the root of all of this? 
Because I think if we're honest, this is why it kills our ability to worship Christ when we gather. I think the answer is in verse 2 and verse 7. Look at verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. What does that mean? God, the almighty creator of all things, is in heaven on his throne, reigning, ruling, resplendent with glory. Out of his mighty power, all things were created, you. Our breath, our life is in the very palm of his hands. The only thing anything continues to exist is by the sovereign will of God. In other words, he's saying, do you know who you're playing games with? You're trifling with God. This is the God of heaven we're playing with when we do this game. And then in verse 7, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. It's just empty. It's empty, vain. But God is the one you must fear. The root cause of all of this is that there is a lack of the fear of God. True, genuine fear of God produces careful guarding of the steps which prepares you for and preserves and enhances your soul's capacity to worship God with a clear conscience. So what is the, na- what is the nature of this fear? And how do we get it? One of the strange things about the fear of God in the Bible is that it, it's, it's a paradox. It's, it's a weird thing. Listen, listen carefully to, the, to what these few verses. Psalm 2, verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Okay, rejoice, be happy, trembling, scared. Happy, scared, happy, scared. That's a paradox. Isaiah 11.3, and his delight shall be the fear of the Lord. Delight, fear, delight, fear. Psalm 96.9, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Worship, tremble, worship, tremble. So how can you delight to fear God? Here's the thing. I really do think that we all long for this. I've done a lot of thinking about this, and you can let, after the service, if you think I'm totally wrong, just not right now, just after, if you, want, if you let me tell I'm totally wrong, you can, that's fine. Have you ever wondered why people pay money to go watch horror films and thrillers? Like millions. I've done some thinking about this. I think it's because there's something in the soul of man that gets a deep thrill out of sheer terror and feeling safe at the exact same time. To witness grand 
awesome, terrifying realities while simultaneously realizing I'm safe, I'm secure from that. It taps into a deep reality that we were created for. Here's an illustration. Some of you may not know this, but here's a little fun fact about Mike McKinney. I was born and raised in Oklahoma. It's a real state. People live there. I say this all the time. We don't live in teepees. People do have horses, but we drive cars and It has been said that Oklahoma is the tornado capital of the world. Um, Just one town over from where I grew up, Norman, Oklahoma, which where the University of Oklahoma was, more Oklahoma, there have been two of some of the most devastating, horrifying, terrifying, most destructive tornadoes ever in the history of weather. Um, My parents... Uh, designed a house a few years ago, and my dad, he's an architect, and he, he designed this like inches thick steel box in like the center of the house, and there's like, it's bolted to the cement floor. It's like a little, little tornado shelter. And he told me that if a tornado ever comes and wipes the house out, and they go into the shelter, they will be secure and safe. Imagine an F5. These things are like miles wide, and they, it's like the hand of God comes on the earth and just swipes clean a pathway on the earth. And anything it touches, it just demolishes. My dad said, if it goes over their house, they'll be safe. Imagine demolishing their house and them coming out of the shelter and seeing the devastation, seeing the terror, and realizing, I should have been destroyed, but I was saved. God has sent a refuge. God has provided that in Christ. Despite the fact that we treat God as no more significant than the rug on our living room floor, despite the fact that we don't draw near to listen, we don't guard our steps, we slip into sin and we make up excuses for it, despite the fact that we make vows and we make all these promises of God that we never, ever keep, he sent his son Jesus Christ And he drew near to God. And he listened to God, to the mission that his father gave him. He vowed to his father to guard his steps in perfect obedience. And he did. There is one man who has ever lived who has never sinned, and his name is Jesus. And he was so obedient to the point at the end of his life, he did not make the sacrifice of fools, rather he sacrificed himself on the cross for our sins and then he resurrected from the dead to prove that it's finished. Friends, God is not looking for us to make vows and to make sacrifices for our sins. He's already done that in the body of his son, Jesus Christ. It's already been done. You you don't have to come in here and make all these promises of God to cover up your sin. You can now come to him and stop hiding it and say, I'm sorry. And out of an overflow of grace through Christ, he lavishes forgiveness. Listen to how Hebrews 10, it'll be up on the screen, describes this. 
Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, this is, this is a quote from Psalm 40. And Christ essentially came and he fulfilled this. And it was him basically speaking to his father. Listen. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, quote, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have not taken pleasure. Then I, Christ, said, Behold, I have come to do your will. As it is written to me in the scroll of the book, when he said above, you neither have desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offering and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, how does all of this relate? This is the gospel. It's the gospel. How, how does this relate to delighting in the fear of God? Right? Because it's only when you rejoice with trembling in Christ that you will truly, with integrity, guard your steps and preserve and enhance your soul's capacity to worship when we gather in the house of God. It's when you realize that your forgiveness, my forgiveness, your reconciliation with God, my reconciliation with God required nothing less than the crucifixion of the very Son of God. When you realize that a mon the monsoon, the F5 tornado of God's fierce wrath toward my sin, toward your sin, should have consumed us but he provides his son as a refuge and a shelter to be preserved and protected from that. And when you realize that it cost the sinless, pure, eternal, almighty son of God to purchase your forgiveness, your soul will be electrified with the fear of God that's a delight to the soul. It's very delightful. And this was the promise that God made through the prophet Jeremiah in 30, Je Jeremiah 32, 39 through 40. This will be up on the screen too. God says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. Parents, do you, do you long for your kids to fear God? I got two little girls. I don't want these girls to fear men. I want them to fear God. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I, God, will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. When you look to the cross... When you look to the cross and you look at what it cost and how God did it out of love, this will cause you to rejoice with trembling. It will cause you to guard your steps. 
And maybe for the first time, it will free you, liberate you to come to the house of God and be enthralled with his grace for you. Now, let's land the plane. So what do we do? Right? What do we do? What do I do? God will not accept the sacrifice of fools. He's already given a sufficient sacrifice in his son. But he will accept one kind of sacrifice from us. Psalm 51, 16 through 17. This is said by King David. After he committed adultery with Bathsheba and tried to cover up his sin by killing her husband. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. What's David saying there? You're not, I have sinned on a massive level. If I could offer a sacrifice and you would delight in it, I would give that, but you won't accept that, so I, I'm not going to give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. I just love that last phrase, you will not despise. He will not despise a broken and contrite heart. Back in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we've been looking at this. The, what, the one thing God does not take pleasure in, the one thing that does cause anger in his heart to rise up, is the sacrifice of fools. But a broken and contrite heart, he will not despise. It's kind of like when a child messes up and sins against their dad. Right? The child runs away and the, and the dad pulls the child out and, and the child's like, I'm sorry, dad, all right? I won't do it again, I promise. Gosh, leave me alone. That does not, that does not delight the father. But if the child comes to the dad and says, I've sinned, dad. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I am broken and I am so sorry. Will you forgive me? What's the prodigal son? The father runs. The father kisses him. The father puts the robe around him. The father embraces him and throws a party for him. This is what God's looking for. Last question. What if I don't feel broken? Right? If that's what God will accept, I know I'm a sinner, but I, frankly... I hate this about, I don't like this, but I simply don't feel broken. A few verses prior to it, it says in verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have, you have broken rejoice. So he's comparing spiritual bones, his soul, his heart. You know, how did it get broken? God did it. Let the bones you, God, have broken. Our hearts by nature are hard, callous, and frozen. Only God has the power to break the heart of stone, cut away the calluses of the heart, and melt the ice. 
If you don't feel broken, the only answer is cry out to God. Break my heart. Break it. I don't feel it. And when that happens, when he does break it, and you realize your sin, and you realize you've been running the cycle of vows and making promises, and he will not reject you. Jesus said in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me I will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Never cast out. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. Thank you for providing a sufficient sacrifice. We forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we have trifled with you, not feared you, not guarded our steps, tried to make up for and cover our sin with vows and promises we cannot keep. Break our hearts. Renew our hearts. Draw us to your son, Jesus Christ. Lift up our heads and let us see your smiling face as we come to you with broken and contrite hearts through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.